Hey everyone, before I start this podcast, I want to quickly let you know about my new Patreon. For me, this Patreon is an opportunity to do more of what I love while getting a little extra financial help finishing my theology MA and taking care of my family. For you, it means rewards for your patronage, such as early access to podcasts and new book projects I'm working on, all of my books in digital format, a special bi-weekly podcast that will discuss biblical theological issues, as well as analysis of a theologically relevant movie selected for that episode, and the ability to see and discuss with me the work I'm doing completing my MA and book projects along the way. At the highest support tier, you can also get autographed physical copies of my books, a shout-out in the podcasts, and the opportunity to suggest a film for me to discuss in the exclusive Patreon podcast. If you'd like to check it out, and be aware that you can be a supporter for as little as a dollar a month, visit www.patreon.com slash you can also click the Patreon link on the sidebar at cantusfirmus.com. That's cantus-firmus.com. Thanks and enjoy the show. Greetings, this is Cody, and you're listening to Cantus Firmus at the Movies. I'm here with, uh, not here actually with Bridget Nelson, but we're on Google Hangouts talking, uh, and we're discussing uh, the 1955 movie The Night of the Hunter, directed by Charles Lawton. Bridget, how are you doing? I'm good. Hello, Cody. We're it's having a, a blizzard here, so I may have to, I don't know, go find Mike. He might be out in the back 40. I have to go tie a rope around myself and go get him. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, uh, I hope you guys get through it okay. Um, you guys are up in Minnesota, right? So it's kind yep. of, you're used to that at this point. You know, yes, I guess we're used to it as as used to it as you can get. Like you wonder every year, why? Why do we live here? But we just keep doing it. You know, I, I live in Ohio, which is not nearly so bad as Minnesota. And I think that every year as well. So yeah. I, <laughs> we both you know. live in gray places, don't we? We kind of live in the the gray slacks of the world. Yep, correct. So um, before we start talking about the movie, I just kind of yeah. wanted to, uh, anyway, you've been on before. So we've I talked have. about you and your background and um, mm -hmm. you, you've been very involved in uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 as a writer mm -hmm. uh, and we're occasionally a featured player, you might say, uh, acting mm -hmm. on, on the show as well. And you've been also very much involved in Rift Tracks, mm -hmm. um, which is the kind of, uh, um, um, uh, I don't know, stepchild or whatever, Mystery Science Theater 3000. Uh, it, although instead of doing necessarily just like B-movies, it's like audio commentary for sometimes Hollywood hits, uh, we, as yes. well as B- Everything. Kind of Everything. Yeah. There's exactly. Um, we've They've even done, um, Mike, Kevin, and Bill have even done Ca Casablanca. They've done um, like good movies, R Wizard of Oz. They've riffed everything, and that doesn't mean you riff it because you think it's bad. You just riff it because it's kind of a commentary over it, a funny overlay, you know, like any yeah. art these days. Yes. Well, and I think it's one of those things too that some movies can be riffed successfully, and it's not necessarily whether they're good or bad. Sometimes bad movies can't be saved with riffing. Um, but right. like, <laughs> oh, totally. Totally. Yeah. Like, for example, um, we've never riffed it, but you know, the movie Marty. I oh, yeah. You, yeah. So good. But like yeah. it, it 
so funny. My family just, we we riff at what we go through because he keeps saying things to her. Like uh, out of the blue, Marty says to the girl who, you know, the kind of homely girl he's dancing with, he's that uh, he's goes, dogs like us, we ain't the dogs people say we are. It's like, yeah. she never said a word about being a dog. <laughs> Not one word. <laughs> so, you know, but you can just talk through that whole movie because there's so many fun things, but it would never ruin that movie. I mean, it yeah. might ruin it, but it wouldn't mean that I didn't love it. Oh, sure. It's a, it's a great movie. But yeah, you're right. There's a lot in it to uh, <laughs> to riff on. Well, and I love The Wizard of Oz one. I haven't seen the Casablanca one, but I keep thinking lately that I should check it out, believe it or not. I've been thinking about it because it, it is like one of my favorite movies. And I keep wondering, what did they do with that? Yes, um, yes, it's funny. But there are so many, you know, kind of, I don't want to say like hard boil, but there's so many little, you know, catchphrases and expressions and things there that, you know, are, are interesting and they work really well in the movie, but I can see how they could be like, you know, <laughs> made into fodder. Yeah, absolutely, um, yes, yeah. yes. And the awesome. way when it, when Strasser dies at the end and he gets shot and then his face, it just looks, Ugh. as he kind of melts down, it just looks, it's so funny. Anyway. Yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm gonna check out the riff tracks now. So okay. I decided on that. Okay, okay so. Um, <laughs> I now, can take your payment right now if you would like. <laughs> Right. Um, you know what's funny with that? My, my I I my wife saw that with me like maybe uh, I don't know a year ago or something, and um, she's watched it with me a number of times. That's like one of the few movies at this point that I can like watch over and over and over again. And like there's there's points that she like just weeps every time, and she like yes. always feels bad when Peter Lorre when they've got him, and he's like Rick, help me, Rick. Yes. Like that part. And it's like all these other little moments. Um. But anyway, yeah. Okay, so. Now with riff tracks, things you're doing right now, you do like a, a one like every month where you're kind of like riffing some of these like old like almost like educational type films, right? Um, you do that with yeah, Mary Jo Peel, like well, Mary Jo Peel and I, um, friends forever and um, uh, riffing partners for about four years, and we were you know where we've doing this. Um, yeah, we do movies too. Um, we've got like one we're going to be recording on Wednesday is called Junior Prom, and it's from the '40s, and it's like a bebop. Everyone's like. Keep the beat, rebeat, a pee-beep. You know, they're doing all that and talking really fast to each other and uh, like a 40s, you know, zoot suit kind of a thing. So we're doing that. And then um, some spring uh, fashion type shorts from the um, 60s. One is called Match Your Mood. And it's about how your clothing and um, decor can match your refrigerator. Or maybe it's your yeah. refrigerator can match what you're wearing. But at either... At any rate, there's zebra <laughs> women in zebra outfits, and their refrigerators look like zebras too. So, from Westinghouse, wow. Westinghouse, there was I think it was this woman named Betty. F no, that's Betty. That's the feminist author, um, Betty Friedan. Um, she did not was not a model for Westinghouse. <laughs> yes, I, I think Betty the refrigerator Friedan. <laughs> no, it was Betty Furness, and she okay. was like a beautiful uh, woman that you know, swung around with her skirts and sold appliances anyway. I think Betty Friedan is when we referred to uh, kitchens as uh, um, um, comfy, comfy, comfy concentration camps or something like that, or the home of domestic women. Oh, that's anyway, funny. Uh, yeah, she wouldn't be a very good refrigerator model. Uh, unless they were like doing something like ironic for the, uh, the new generation of hipsters right. that like that kind of thing. Okay, so, <laughs> oh, okay, one more thing. There's a Rift Tracks Kickstarter right now, and it ends March 24th. Yes, it does, and there's still right? time to contribute to kick to stretch goals, and there's prizes, and go on the website um, or go on a Kickstarter, and you can read all the details, but it's amazing because every year 
we do this and every year the amazing Rift Tracks fans contribute. We get to do these super cool movies like this their year. I say we, but it's the guys. Um, Krull and also Space Mutiny, which was a huge mystery science theater favorite. It was the one with like blast hard cheese and <laughs> chunk hard rock. And they, you know, this guy with all these names and they're going to re-riff it and it's going to be super fun. So it, um, we reached the goal really quickly and now is all the fun stretch goals. So people, if you want to just have some fun and contribute, that would be great. Now, are, are we going to have brand new names like Biff Hardcheese, like kind of action hero type names? I don't know. Or, or is that is that going to be part of the, the riff? Eye has not seen or ear has not heard what the guys have for us. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm pretty excited at the possibility of, of, of new too. ones. But I don't know what and, they're going to uh, yeah, and that's a great uh, mystery science theater episode. That was, I mean, that was very rich uh, uh, terrain for uh, for for, for uh, making fun oh. of. And and crawl um, is a movie I tried to watch once and I, I couldn't finish it. But I think with the riffs, that might change. Yeah, I've never seen <laughs> so it, so I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah, it was kind of it's like it was kind of one of those movies like Legend or whatever, like with Tim Curry and Tom Cruise. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't know, a little more like in space or something. Anyway, it was weird. Legend but, um, in space. Okay. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's a good way to say it. Legend in space. Yeah. Okay, so so those are all awesome things uh, that yes. people should check out. Um, and uh, now we want to be discussing the Night of the Hunter. Mm -hmm. um, as I mentioned, it's uh, directed by Charles Lawton. It was his only time directing. I know. He's more more well known as an actor. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, man, one of my favorite uh, Lawton movies where, where he's acting is uh, Island of Lost Souls. And that's one I, I want to do sometime on the podcast. But oh. uh, he's like wonderful in that and crazy and awesome and uh, that so was good. kind of like yeah he's fantastic and he did a fantastic job here this movie is i mean so amazing to watch and i guess i understand why it wasn't very successful at the time it came out like in 1955 because it's it's kind of like a fever dream you know and it's terrifying um, too it is i mean and not just terrifying in what happens in the way that it's acted just like just the way everything's put together and the the set design and the lighting and the use of shadow and you know, he kind of famously, uh, I think before he directed this, because he hadn't directed anything before, like uh, rented out like all the, uh, like every film that, um, D.W. Griffith films, and just uh -huh. like watched them like very, very closely. <laughs> and he like was almost like his sort of film school. I've like, never directed before, but I'm just going to really closely so watch just every D.W. Of a Nation and just went. Yeah, and just and so he like sort of tried to take cues from Griffith because you know for all the problems that Birth of a Nation has as far as its message, it's uh, you know it was land like a landmark film as far as the style mm -hmm. um, and the way that you know Hollywood movies were made, and you can see that in the film in a number of places in um, Night of the Hunter. But I I what I kind of stuck out to me is if you've watched any like German expressionist films from like the 1920s, like yes, uh, um, there's like a huge influence there that I really haven't seen in a lot of Hollywood movies, especially. Oh yeah, totally. It's, t I always say the name wrong, but the cabinet of Dr. Caligari or Caligari, yep. I don't know which way you go. Caligari. But um, yes, all of the like um, pointy, the light goes up pointy and the angles and uh, it just gives you that off feeling uh, like it's a dream. It's real, but you may not, is it real? Can I get out of the here? Very claustrophobic. It's it's so good. Yeah, well, especially like the shots where, like in the bedroom, where he's there with um his you know his new wife, <laughs> um, and it's like you have like these, I mean, huge like, you know, like almost like flying buttress kind of like angles. Yes, and stuff. Oh, totally. It looks like it looks like a church. But we should tell people who maybe have never seen it. Tell them the little synopsis. Okay. Yeah. Let's do that. Okay. So um. 
Well, first of all, let me start real quickly just by, by, by uh, saying who's in it and then um, the names, and then we'll sort of move from there. So Robert Mitchum plays the character of Harry Powell, who's also mm-hmm. called Preacher, uh, especially in, in the book, which I, I read because I thought the movie was so interesting. Shelley Winters plays Willa Harper, a widow. Uh, and by the way, Preacher is, we'll get into this, but Preacher is, uh, is insane. But um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is he Gish- insane or is he he's evil? Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure. And we'll get into that, though. So okay. um, Lillian Gish plays the character of Rachel Cooper. Lillian Gish, of course, from the uh, D.W. Griffith films, famously. And then there's um, the young children of um, Willow the Harper, youngins. the widow. The youngins. Uh, John and Pearl Harper. So, oh, there's also a, a, a brief appearance by Peter Graves as their father. Yes. Uh, whom, whom I always connect with the beginning of the end uh, in the Mystery Science Theater. Yes, man found out too late, wasn't it? Isn't that, isn't it? It... The man's a living creature or something like that. Anyway, oh, yes. Yeah. yes. It's, yeah, yeah. It's kind of their uh, Twas Beauty Killed the Beast. Yes, yes. Uh, it was famously to um, uh, Crow wrote a screenplay about Peter Graves called um, Peter Graves at the University of Minnesota. Yes. <laughs> With the gripping title. <laughs> yeah, trying, yes, he was trying to sell it, wasn't he? Around the same time he was trying to sell Earth versus Soup. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, what I always remember, um, and it was sort of a the fact that Peter Graves was like the TCM host at the time who would like yes. introduce all the movies. So anytime he'd come on screen, I think it was Crow who would say, "I'm Peter Graves." I'm Peter Graves. Yes. <laughs> so okay, so th- those are the characters: Preacher, Willa Harper, Rachel Cooper, and then the youngins, John and Pearl. So the basic synopsis here is that uh, Harry Powell is this like self-appointed itinerant preacher. And he is like going from place to place, murdering widows. Yes, it's he's got a kind of an interesting hobby. Well, and and apparently there, this is somehow like I don't know how much truth it is based in, but this is actually based on a, a real life character, oh. uh, believe it or not, which is kind of interesting. I want to Was figure out. Really? More that. Oh, that's so creepy. Yeah. So he winds up in jail for car theft. They don't for get him that, yes. for killing widows. Yeah, and, yeah. and they give him thirty days only for grand theft. Thirty days. That's it for stealing a car. <laughs> yeah, and I think at the time that they arrest him, he's he's thinking about uh, killing a burlesque dancer. <laughs> so uh, yeah. um, he's kind of averted there. Uh, yeah, but, uh, yeah, because he says he hates things. That, that he's sure that the Lord hates things, soft things, perfumey things, curly things, curly haired <laughs> like, things. You hate Harpo Marks? Like what is it? That <laughs> <laughs> made me laugh. It's so creepy. Yeah. Okay, so uh, well, and actually, the line there, and it's 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 kind of interesting in the book because it's done a little bit differently. But uh, the line there, when he's thinking about killing this burlesque dancer in the book, it's a prostitute. It's like he always like waits for he thinks that God will tell him, you know, like yes. when he's supposed to kill somebody, yes. and so like he's about to do it. He's reaching for his knife or whatever, and uh, and he thinks that God tells him, "Oh, well, never mind those people. You can't kill a whole world." And it's like <laughs> there's too many of them. Yes. Um, which I thought, I don't know, that line sticks out to me. You can't kill a whole world. You can't kill um, the whole um, world, right. Yeah, no, um, he's, he's pure, purely evil. Anyway, okay. Yeah, so he's in jail for car theft, and he meets a man, uh, Peter Greaves, who's about to be uh, hanged for killing two other men while robbing a bank, uh, I guess bank mm-hmm. tellers or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so and he gets stealing the idea $10,000. Yes, yes, he, yes. He, he's he's stolen this money and nobody knows where it is. And uh, the preacher gets the idea that the man's two children know where he hid the money. And he decides, since this guy's about to be hanged anyway, um, he's going to go and marry his widow, and eventually mm-hmm. he's going to find the loot. Right. Some spoilers here, and we're going to have to get into this somewhat, so I'm just going to, you know, 
Oh, are you not, not supposed to give spoilers on this? Because you know, I'm, I'm sorry, going to because we, okay. we have to. I, yeah, all we right. can't talk it without giving spoilers. And this is like all in the first half. I'm not actually going to give away anything about the last half of the movie in this synopsis. So okay, all, this good. is all in the first half. So he marries this woman. She thinks he's this you know wonderful man of God or whatever, and so does everybody else. But eventually, she overhears him asking these kids where the money is, which he told her. Oh well, you know, um, um, uh, what's the, what's the guy's name? Brother something or other. Uh, the guy, the the husband, brother he told, Harper, brother Harper or whatever. Yeah, he he threw it in the bottom of a lake or the river, and so that's what he's told her. But then she hears him asking the the kids where the money is and threatening them. Yes. So she becomes wise, and he, of course, murders her. And <laughs> yes, he does. But can I bring something up that I just yeah. love in the in the jail cell? So so he steals a car, and he's in for thirty days. But they put him in with a guy who's going to be hanged, which you know I don't know what kind of prison this was. But anyway, they um, and then at one point, <clears throat> um, Robert Mitchum is um hanging over because he's got the top bunk, and the murderer guy is Peter Graves is in the bottom bunk, and and um. Robert Mitchum like hangs down to talk to him. And then Peter Graves punches him in the face and he punches him out of his bunk. He goes flying out of his bunk. It's really awesome. It's great. And and I think, you know, it's so early in the movie that you don't really get to enjoy it <laughs> like as much as you should. Like if you, if that would be, that would be great at the end of the movie. If he just gets socked. Yes. Once you, you hate him so much, but it is kind of fun. Cause he punches him right in his butt chin. Right in Robert, he's got such. Does he not have the biggest butt? He so needs chinderwear. He so needs to cover up yeah. his obscene uh, chin. Anyway, yeah, that's a great moment. Yeah, I know. And yeah, he does. He does have a, quite the chin. He does, um, and he falls yeah, out so, of it. He just like it's it's worth the price of admission to see that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a pretty good fall. Okay, so the, the kids like so he corners these kids. And it's like, he's like cornered them in the basement. He's got like this knife and they like get away and they take a boat down river and he's tracking them along the way. So that's like the first half of the movie. That's, right. that's what happens. Right. And so right. he's going to get them eventually is kind of the idea. Right. And they're they like, swore oh, to their daddy that they would never, ever, ever tell where the money is. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, the, the daddy, you know, the dad makes, you know, John in particular swear that he's not going to tell. And he just like carries it around like this terrible burden. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah pretty psychologically damaging. Yeah. Um, so that's this kind of starting point here. And like we talked about like the, you know, the way that it looked a little bit. And I talked about kind of the German expressionist look and that kind of thing. But this is, I mean, an amazing film to watch just aesthetically. Mm -hmm. what, did, what did you think as far as that was concerned? Well, it's, it's beautiful. In fact, my, um, our, one of our kids, our sons, George, um, he, was he likes German expressionism and he was just kind of watching it on his own one night and stopped it and um, said, you have to come here and see this shot. This shot is so beautiful. And it's um, the one where they first set out on the river and the stars mm -hmm. are up high and the, and the water's just taking them down and it's very quiet. It's, it's just beautiful. Just that still shot. You could just take a picture of it. It's beautiful, but that's gorgeous. And then it also starts out really cool with, um, a plane like they gets these these great aerial shots mm -hmm. which he did not need to do i mean the money and everything that he spent on that and just kind of showing the landscape from the from uh you know from from the from the air it's really that's really well done too so it starts out great it's not like any other movie so i can see why people didn't like it yeah but i'm mean, watching it now i mean i think maybe with hindsight it's 
uh, I mean, it's amazing to watch. And, mm -hmm. and it's like a lot of these outdoor scenes, I mean, as far as I can tell that they're like, in a lot of cases, they're using sets. And, and that like is pretty consistent with the way like German expressionism mm -hmm. kind of films would work because it was not really about creating something that looked real to life. It was about creating a mood and a feel. Yes, and so yes. a lot of these outdoor scenes where they are you know, supposedly outdoor scenes where they use these sets, just the way the stars look and the way the sky looks, it's, it's like so really kind of eerie and unearthly. Yeah, it's beautiful, but it's it's like unearthly. It's eerie. Um, yes. So there's that, and and there's like all kinds of other little visual things, like these little cues and hints about things. So like that hit him with the knife, the tattoo. He's got these tattoos on his uh, on his knuckles. One one hand says love, the other one says hate, and that's like been a trope in you know all kinds of like bad movies where somebody's in prison for at least a few minutes, uh, right. where somebody has that tattoo. Yeah, and actually Spike Lee used it too in um. Uh, oh gosh, what is that one movie? Ah, uh, not she's got to have it. Do the right thing. Uh, yeah. the one guy. Uh, Does Rakeem have it? Maybe. Yes, yes, he's got brass knuckles that say it. Yeah, and then yeah. he punches Mookie or Tuki or what's that guy's name? Uh, Mookie is Spike Lee's character, but there's yes. um, uh, I can't think of the uh, the name of the. Doesn't he? He tries to like strangle the uh, the uh, uh, the guy who owns the pizza shop whose name I yes, can't remember. Yes. Yes. So yeah, so that, that shows up in a lot of things. So there's like the knife, there's the tattoos, there's this audio cue as well, which is like anytime he's about to do something like totally terrible, he sings like very slowly, leaning on the everlasting arms. The old I hymn. know, which and, um, is so upsetting because I love that hymn. And one day, this king got taken away by some bad men. And before he got took off, he told his son to kill anyone who tried to steal his gold. And before long, the bad men came back, and... Just a man. Good night, Pearl. Sleep tight and don't let the bed bugs bite. Yeah, and it's Alan Jackson sings it the best if you ever want oh, to really? good. So good. Okay, um, I'll check that out. He's the man's a living legend. I love Alan Jackson. But anyway, um, uh, it, it's, it's, yeah, he sings his song and then he does evil things. It's really, really creepy. And, and you know what, this might be a good time maybe uh, to talk a little bit about like who this character is supposed to be, like what yeah, he do. Is, is evil or, or insane mm -hmm. because like there's a certain degree of self-awareness that he has, right? You know, he knows enough to lie. Mm -hmm. He knows enough to like misrepresent himself and he pretends to be something that he's not. Right. And yet he seems to think that God is telling him to do these terrible things. At least some of them. Like he thinks that God is telling him to kill these widows. Right. I get like maybe more a sense of this in the book um, mm -hmm. that he has like suffered some kind of sexual trauma because the way that he treats sexuality yeah. is, is I mean, pretty bizarre. So like he, and there's even a line where he's like praying to God or something. And he says that he doesn't think, God minds the killings. 
Um, but he doesn't like all the, the curly headed things and the perfumed things and that kind of thing. So that, yes, yes, yes. He, yeah, he thinks, yeah, he's a, the classic woman hater. Um, and, um, I mean, I don't know how else you can slice that up, forgive the use of that word, but uh, that's, he just hates women. He hates attractive women. Yeah, in particular. Well, and so, okay. In the scene where he marries the widow. He marries Shelly Winters. Yeah. He marries Shelly Winters. And they, you know, are on their honeymoon in this hotel and she comes out of the bathroom and has a nice robot. Although in the book, she's nude. Mm -hmm. and he like gives her this big shaming speech about, you know, do you think I was going to come pawn at you and that kind of thing? Like, men right, right. And he like sort of puts her in front of a mirror and like he sort of shames her and says, you know, this body's not made for, for, for lust. It's made for, you know, having, having babies. babies. Yeah. And it's yeah. so cruel because she, um, it's just so cruel because it's her wedding night and he's yeah. acting like she's um, wanting to do something that she should be ashamed of. And she's already has trepidation about it. And she's already has, is a zero self-esteem person as Shelly Winters plays so well yeah. and uh, always so well. Um, and so it is, it's so frightening, but the time 1955, what's in a way it's even more creepy because they don't, go to the violent extremes that a movie of today would go to. And so you're left to imagine that the trauma that he probably had or what happened to him. And then they don't show what they would show in a movie now, which ends up actually being more terrifying and ends up where someone like me watches the movie where I would never watch the new version of this movie. It would just be too awful for me to even, I just wouldn't watch it. Well, yeah, and you know the the two things that about that scene that are different in the book that stand out interestingly to me. Um, one thing is her sort of inner monologue, where mm -hmm. she's before she comes out and she's thinking to herself, you know, I don't have you know a lot to offer, but the one thing I do have is my body. Right, and, and I am married. We are married. Yeah. That's what. But, you but do. it's like this one thing that she's trying to give him. Right. And like this little piece of self esteem that she has. You know, she's like, you know, I, you know, I don't have much, but I have a body, and it's beautiful, and whatever. And he just sort of shames her and shoots her down. Oh, it's and awful. Then, but then after that, when they go to bed. Uh, well, he lied. She, he goes, I was praying. I mean, he does the worst kind of religious abuse that you can do is to shame someone by using religion or or the Bible. He That's all he does is, oh, it's just so cruel because she wants to be made clean. She wants to. She realizes she was a kind of a selfish person in the past anyway. Well, particularly about the money, I think, and, and that's maybe more pronounced in the book that the money, it's in the movie too, but the money is a sort of source of shame because she she wants it, uh, mm -hmm. but it like has sort of infected everything. You know, it's infected her family. It's it's, it's destroyed her family. And, you know, she sort the of The love of money it. has destroyed their family. Yes. Yeah. So, so yeah, there's a lot of shame, but after all this happens and they're, they're you know, asleep or whatever, the, the film cuts there, but in the book, she hears him weeping next to her really? after all that. Yeah. And they don't get into any particular background or anything about what happened to this guy, but there's like, you know, obviously something going on, some sort of sexual trauma that he's like, has sort of, he's sort of acting out against it, like with violence. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is pretty, I mean, I, and it's, you know, you can only like try to speculate, but it, it does add sort of a, you know, this extra dimension to the character that you don't really get in the movie. Cause in the movie it's like, well, he's crazy or evil or both, but they really don't have any reason to feel sorry for him at all. But like, no, this no. And Cody, I absolutely 
think that he is not crazy in the least. He is right. evil. See, in my mind, he's too rational to be to be crazy. Everything he does makes perfect sense if you're evil. And that, and that could be. Now, so what, what I will say, though, is you have this element here of, and I think we've all kind of met people like this maybe, uh, who justify their own bigotry or, or, or hates or hatred or whatever on the basis of some Bible verse they picked up here or there. Right, right. And that at the very least seems to be happening, that he has this perception in his head about the way the world is mm -hmm. and about what has to be done with it, that at the very least he's put into the mouth of God. You know, uh, he, he's, he's perceiving that God is, is, is in agreement with him on this and that, in fact, God is leading him and directing him. Right, right, which um, he is he's wrong. He is not. Yeah. Well, and, and in particular, and it's interesting because there is that trope of the, you know, the, the, the hateful, bigoted, you know, religious zealot who shames people for their sexuality or whatever. But what's interesting to me is that when you're, when you're reading through the Bible, um, sexual sins are actually treated with, I think, the most amount of grace compared to other kinds of sins. Yes, um, it's true. Like, yes. But not yeah. murder, not sexual murder sins. <laughs> well, not yeah, well, certainly, yeah, certainly not murder and not like harming right. children. You know right. what I mean? You know, Absolutely. Jesus has the whole thing about, you know, you better have, you'd rather, you'd rather be better for you to be thrown into a river with a millstone on your neck than to, to harm a child. Yeah, or um, harm one of these. Yes. Uh, absolutely. I mean, because this sexual sin is what got, you know, with my, with, um, uh, excuse me, um, on the roof, David, King David. Mm -hmm. I mean, and he was the man, as we all know, he was man after God's own heart. And yet that sexual sin and lust is what brought him down. And it, it caused, a, it's, but he, he didn't rescind his promises to Israel because it, it exactly. And he didn't take anything away. Sure. Yeah. I think uh, I would and agree. Rahab, and Rahab, Rahab comes to mind too. In the yep. Old Testament, the, the only, the only uh, uh, person in Jericho who saved is a prostitute. Right. So, right. I mean, sexual sin, I think is treated with a great deal of grace, but yeah. You know, the woman with five husbands, we don't really know if it was sexual sin or what was going on there, but some sort of sex was happening <laughs> to have five husbands. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, and, and, and it's always the Pharisees, for example, who are, you know, does he know who he's eating with? Does he know what kind of woman this is? Um, right. Jesus doesn't mind. No. Nope. <laughs> you know? Uh, so that's interesting to me too, that, yeah, people have this tendency to make uh, the Bible into how you know whatever fits in with their own history of trauma or their own biases or whatever. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so that, that's that's an interesting element, but it becomes this this sort of source of religious hypocrisy, which I think is one of the big themes in the movie. Um, mm -hmm. There's sort of an opening um, quote where uh, um, uh, what's her name? Lillian. Um, uh, well, yeah, Lillian Gish, uh, Rachel Cooper is the character where she is reading to the children from scripture and says, you know, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inside are ravening wolves. Right. Um, Ready yeah. to devour. Yeah. So beware yeah, of false so prophets. Yes. And sheep's clothing. And then she talks about the good tree bearing good fruit. No good tree. No, but no bad tree can bear good fruit. No good tree can bear bad fruit. And um, the other, I think what's uh, interesting is she's the only one uh, that reads scripture and mm -hmm. then it, and it informs her, her, the things she says and the things she does. Everyone else, no one else reads scripture. The preacher carries his Bible around, but he never reads from it. And, um, they're mm -hmm. all the ones that are, uh, spewing all the religious stuff and, um, 
and talking about God all the time. And yet they're all the, the, they're the hypocrites and they're also the evil ones. And then the, the icy, what's her, her name? Icy spoon. Yeah. She's just to me, well, we have to introduce that character, but, um, it's just interesting, but the one the one woman who actually reads scripture is the only one that doesn't really bandy it about unless she's instructing the kids. Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah, and, okay. So, so yeah, quickly we should get into the spoons. So the, the spoons own this ice cream shop that Willa, uh, or the char character played by Shelley Winters, uh, she works at, mm -hmm. and Icy is this kind of actually I think in in, in the uh, in the book. Um, Rachel Cooper refers to her as one of those Duck River Baptists who's probably a Republican. Oh, that's uh, funny. That's how she describes her. But, that's hilarious. Um, um, but yeah, so she's this zealous woman who's encouraging Willa to get remarried. And when this preacher comes into town, oh, he's a man of God. If he's, if he's interested in you, you should, you know, grab him right now. Kind of oh, yeah. She's really that woman like, you don't have much. So if a kind of a, this good looking guy likes you, you should just go for him. Don't be stupid. Yeah. That's kind of her. That's yeah. basically what she says. And she has some great lines in the movie, including like some that kind of shocked me um, for like the time period that we're talking oh, about a movie yes. made in 1955. Um, <laughs> she refers to the sex act as, um, you know, well, you know, mostly I just, I lay there and think about my canning. Um, <laughs> yes. And, yeah, she did. And then, and then um, she, they go to her husband and he kind of gets this like, um, you know, like pulls his at his tie, basically like, uh, ah, well, uh. <laughs> that's very funny. Yeah. So, so, so those are the spoons, you know, I see is this kind of person who's, I think sort of easily duped by this notion, you know, somebody claims to be something and that's what they are. So she holds this sort of sacred, I guess, mm -hmm. uh, this notion of the man of God. We get into Rachel uh, Cooper, who's played by Lillian Gish, who uh, was sort of a major actress in the D.W. Griffith films. And it, it's not an, an accident that she was selected to, to play this part, considering Lawton was so uh, influenced by watching Griffith's films before well, he made right. this. And, and she also, um, you know, she was the ultimate uh, young, sweet, innocent thing in, in the silent era. And I think it's interesting that then he would pick her to kind of be the leader of the children. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and, and her whole thing is, but you know, eventually they get down river and find her and she's, it's like a depression year. She's taking in all these, you know, kids who are running around, you know, without mm -hmm. parents and, you know, raising them up and taking care of them. And she reads, reads them, reads them, reads them from the Bible every night. She has, I think, a, a, you know, a very deep and abiding concern for, uh, for, for children and, um, uh, you know, little things. I think is the, the phrase that she uses. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Little thing, yeah. something like that. And which, you know, is just another way of, of saying. The world's harsh uh, for little things. Yeah, it's a, hard, it's, it's a hard world for little things. Yeah, and um, which is just kind of another way of saying, you know, like uh, what Jesus talked about, you know, the whole, the first will be last. And there's a sort of, it's a very much a gospel oriented approach, but it contradicts this idea uh, of the spoons, for example, that, well, you know, uh, we trust the man who's in authority. And so there's this sort of very Do they? opposing. I, I think she does, but I think Mr. Spoon is just a nebbish. He doesn't, he doesn't trust oh, sure. him, but he doesn't have enough integrity well, to say anything. Yeah. Yeah. I see at least, I think I see has this sort of approach of that's, I think a little bit more institutionalized. What Rachel's kind of doing is, is focusing more on the little things, uh, you know, and so there's this very much a reverse kind of approach of, of how they see the gospel and how they see the world. Yes how this whole thing affects John in particular, because his little sister Pearl is pretty young. She's like four, I think. Mm -hmm. um, 
how does this affect the way John thinks about God? Because there's this man who's supposed to be the man of God and he's cruel. John from the beginning doesn't trust him because he makes up this lie about the, 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 the money being thrown in the river and John knows that he's, he's full of it. Right. Um, and, so it's basically like adults like this guy, but no kid likes this guy. Well, I, his sister takes a shine to him, but she's too young to know any better. You know, mm -hmm. she sees him, I think, as like another dad. Yes, and um, she's supposed to love him. Yeah, she's yeah. someone, yeah, love him, but she doesn't really, yeah, that's true. She loves her brother more, though. Yeah. She yes. listens to him. Exactly. Well, and so, but the, there's these, this way that this whole thing sort of shapes the way John thinks about uh, about God. Um, so, oh, so real quickly, um, the way John remembers the police coming and arresting and beating his dad, yeah. um, he thinks of them as, he calls them the blue men. Oh, uh, and so in the book, there's all these references to you know in his sort of inner monologue of the blue men, and so there's this like scene where he's watching uh, um, preacher, and and uh, he says he's thinking to himself, well, my mom says he's a man of God, so God is one of them. God is a blue man. Oh wow. So he thinks of you know God as this sort of cruel authority figure, this sort of mm -hmm. authoritarian, um, because of the way preacher has represented. God wow. Okay. Wow. Okay. And um, and like a little bit later in the book, as he's sort of like, you know, struggling with how he's supposed to respond to this guy because this guy's supposed to be this authority figure. He's supposed to, you know, listen to and do what he says. Uh, and so he decides. This is a quote. So I will be God, and then I won't be so scared of him. That's what um, John says. That's what John says to himself. That he uh -huh. sort of is going to cr make up his own rules or whatever so that way he doesn't have to be afraid of what god's going to do to him because once again god is a blue man wow um, well but he in the movie they don't really go there at all they don't really but but you have to imagine that something's happening with him and you get a hint of it a little bit because he's he starts to treat preacher with a great deal of skepticism but then he meets rachel and uh yes and i might say that let me throw this in so if yeah. if indeed he did say that in the book that i'll be i'll do this and then i will be god mm -hmm. right is that what he said Someone he says, i'll be god then i won't be scared of him um isn't that's what we all do when we are yeah. take our lives into our own hands and kind of our fist up at god i'll do it my way i mean anytime we are in any kind of I think all of us, when we are away from God, are being our own gods, going our own way, and all all, all of us have turned away. And and um, the bad guy, Robert Mitchum, at one point says, um, they ask, "Someone asks him, what kind of a preacher are you? What kind of a religion do you uh, do you have?" And he says, "I've got a re the religion that the Almighty and I made up betwixt us." Yeah. So that's exactly what he's doing. Is he's just making up his own way because yeah. then you don't have to be wrong you don't have to sin you don't have to have consequences yeah. but 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 it, but in the case of john i think there's something that i, I may mean, agree with you. i think that that's what we all do but in the case of john i think it starts from a place that you can you can uh, sort of understand because he's given this perception of who god is that's so mm -hmm. not god right and and so you know but that does change with rachel i mean in, in particular he starts hearing these Bible stories. Right. And, you know, first he stays standoffish. She's reading from the Bible and he goes and stands outside. Yeah. He walks right outside. Yeah. yeah. I've had enough of that kind of. Yeah. And so then she, he starts to hear these stories and they sound awful familiar. They're about, you know, this, this, this young boy uh, who is, you know, pulled out of a river uh, <laughs> taken care of. Mm -hmm. And he, he sees himself in the story. He sees himself in the story of Moses. And then they start talking about, 
uh, Jesus and his family having to flee. Yes. And he sees himself there as well. Right. And suddenly God, you know, the gospel seems different to him. It's not, it's no longer about these sort of authoritarian figures who- He's the God who saves. He's the God yeah. who saves. Well, and it's, 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 he's the God who identifies with the weak things, mm -hmm. the little mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. you, know, he, you know, he's, he's the God who's a baby uh, who's being hunted. Right. Right. And, 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 you know, what's interesting too is, um, you know, this kind of idea of hypocrisy, because there's a different kind of hypocrisy that Rachel represents that, that and I don't, you know, I don't even want to call it hypocrisy, but, you know, preacher is like this hateful man who pretends to be loving, mm -hmm. whereas Rachel is this very kind woman who pretends to be a lot harder than she is. Um, and, and that's kind of an interesting dichotomy that they're both sort of pretending to be something else. And, you know, uh, but I think it's, it, they're both coming from a place of maybe being hurt where she pretends to be harder than she is because she's been hurt. Mm -hmm. Whereas he pretends to be kind when he's really cruel because whatever has happened to him has turned him that way. And there, uh, yeah. there are these but kind it, of two different ways to react to that. Um, I would say though that her, uh, her authority that she has is she's a gracious, stern authority over these kids. And, mm -hmm. and that might be why she does that where the other guy, you know, he has, he's an authoritarian and it, they don't respect him at all. And that isn't real authority at all. He's just a huge bully and, yeah. a, and, a, and a murderer, but yeah, they do. Yeah. But I mean, I don't, I don't know if that's, yes, I know what you mean where she wasn't just this kind hearted, uh, little old lady, but mm -hmm. doesn't it kind of seem like that would have been what you would have been at that time too? You with kids, people weren't as, um, you're a little rougher with kids, even when you really love them. Yeah, sure. Well, I think it, it starts when she gets the kids and she's trying to give them to take a bath and John won't listen. And she like takes them around and starts switching them. Yeah, so just, she kind of, yeah. So she's yeah. this disciplinarian, but it's coming from a different place. And John, I think picks up on it pretty quickly. It's the that. first, yes, it's the first real authority that he's known that you can trust yeah. and you can relax into it. That that it's the first real authority that gives freedom, which is true authority, gives freedom. But even, even when she's spanking him, though, I mean, that's the thing. Right. Even when she's disciplining him, right. there's a sense of peace that he has there. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and I think this is an interesting little element in the book um, that when he knows that Hunter's coming back that night and she's on the porch there with the shotgun, um, it says that he sleeps. And it's like he just he, he he trusts so much. Oh yeah, he's asleep in the movie. He's asleep yeah. at her feet. Yeah, and which you know, despite all the all the you know the danger and fear, he's able to simply just trust her. Uh -huh. uh, but do you know what, uh, Cody? He falls asleep in the boat when he first gets the first time they run away from yeah. Robert Mitchum. Which it's come on, the guy had a name, but it's basically Robert Mitchum is chasing them because he's terrifying. <laughs> anyway, um, the second they get in the boat, he falls asleep. Yeah. I don't know if you noticed that. I did, yeah. I, I think in the book they just talk about how he just has, I think he's maybe so worn out from the ordeal or whatever. Whereas I think, at least, I mean, you know, the book and the movie are a little different and sometimes you can read in different things. When I guess I should have read the book. Well, well, I don't want to talk too much about the book, but I think it informs some elements. But sure. in, in the book, he does, um, it does, he does talk about how he goes right to sleep knowing the hunter's out there uh, just because he trusts her so much. That's really um, nice. Yeah, that's beautiful. And, and and I think that, you know, she represents, I think, a much more faithful vision of God than Preacher does. That I even should in, hope so. Yeah. But, that, but that, that even in even in that um that situation that feels right. very dangerous, yes. there can be trust. 
Oh, totally, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so um, she pretends to be harder, I think, than she is at times, but um, you recall, uh, what was the name of the uh, the older girl? Um, Ruby. Yeah. So so Ruby is, uh, you know, going out supposedly for sewing lessons <laughs> and mm -hmm. meeting, you know, shacking up with boys. And I've been with men. Yeah, yeah. I've been with men. Um, and she is, like, very comforting about it, you know, because Ruby... I think is feeling, you know, shameful about it. She's sorrowful about it. And she's not, uh, Rachel doesn't like shame her about it. She no, doesn't. totally not at all. She does. You're right. She doesn't. She just says, yep. Okay. Almost as if like, okay, you confessed it. And now I'm not even going to remember it. It's as far as East is from West. All yeah. right. Yep. It's great. So yeah, there's, I think, yeah, Rachel presents, I think so much a better picture of God, but, and I think too, I love that this movie has Rachel because I feel like in old Hollywood, there was this maybe <laughs> fear of um, if you present a, just a negative religious figure, mm -hmm. that it's going to come off as anti-religious right. um, and that you'll just have this negative stereotype stand in for all religious people. So they would try to have some sort of a counterbalance. And I, I love that she's here because I kind of feel like in a lot of contemporary Hollywood movies, she just wouldn't be there. You would just have preacher. And oh, if there absolutely. is a Rachel at all. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Because she says, like, for example, with Ruby, she says, you know, you were looking for love in the in the only foolish way you knew how. So mm -hmm. she's showing this, this real wisdom about uh, why a person would be, you know, she's just basically going out and guys are buying her ice cream and then she's making out with them. And you know what I mean? She's just doing that to get stuff. And she wants to do that with the preacher. And so mm -hmm. she would have given the chance, you know what I mean? But she doesn't get the chance. And so, yeah, I agree with you like that, that they're showing that her, that she's um, wise in the world. She's sly as a fox. Rachel knows about the world, but she's mm -hmm. gentle as a dove. And they do not make fun of actual biblical. Uh, uh, I don't want to say they just don't make fun of real religion. They don't make fun of a real Christian, which is what she is. So you just yeah. wonder what Charles Lawton was, was thinking that it's kind of amazing that they don't make fun of it, of her. It's it's not playing for any kind of cynicism. They don't. They're not. Uh, she's not secretly bad. She is just purely good. But like you said, but it's not like this complete opposite. Like all good because she's got a little. She's a little bit saucy. She whips the kid because he does a bad thing. She's you know, she's a real. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I kind of feel like if 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 this film was remade, and maybe I'm wrong, but or a film like this was made now. If, if there was a Rachel character at all, I have a suspicion that Rachel would be at least an implied agnostic. That yes, they, you know, oh yeah. uh, yes, of course. No, she would be um, she would be a citizen or a a, um, a realist, and she just knows that um, we have to help each other would be the highest good. Yeah, and, and so yeah, but whereas in this film, I mean, her her who she is and what she does is rooted in her Christian faith. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, but and and I think this whole. The I mean, whole she pulls point, a gun on him. She's got a she gun does. on the guy. And then, did you notice, like twice in the movie? So she shoots at him, and then he does this wallop, like um, like demons are coming out of him. He does that twice in the movie. Oh he yeah, right, weird. Right, yeah, weird scream. Yeah. Yeah. Which he's like that, hollering, hooting, or whatever, hooping, yes. hooping. Yeah. yeah, he's whooping. Or, yeah, hooping and a hollering, but it's uh. It's very eerie, and it isn't him. It's very unearthly or un. Okay. And did you notice this? She's standing. She's sitting on the porch with the gun, and I love the way they shoot this because you see him, then you see her, 
and then the camera pans over and you see that she's like on her like almost like right behind her mm-hmm. uh and it's and he's like in this he's outside and it almost looks like a garden scene where he's like the serpent in the garden yes oh yes uh, yes 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 i did notice yeah, that it's amazing so it's yeah super cool. I love- and then he screams like he um is found out you know like he's being mocked which the devil hates to be mocked and that's kind of the way he is and then he does that once john does something to him when he first doesn't get him when he's going after john in the boat and then he can't get him he just kind of howls at the moon yeah 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 he's he's interesting when he when he just sort of loses it yeah <laughs> and, but yeah. but but that scene where you know cuz he he sort of okay so he comes to try to get John and Pearl because he finds out he gets information about the whole thing uh, that, that, that he's, she's taken in these, these two kids and he finds Ruby and she says, Oh yeah, their names are John and Pearl. So he comes, pretends to be their long lost daddy. Mm-hmm. And Rachel already doesn't believe it because John had said something to hit her about her parents, his parents being dead. Yeah. And there's so- all these little signals for her that this guy's not who he says he is. No, because he tries to do his like shtick. Have I let me tell you the story of love and hate? H A T E is house Kane slain, and he goes into that, and she just basically does the yeah, like uh, yeah, whatever. Okay, let's get on with it. She doesn't even allow him to go into his sales pitch that usually uh, kind of bewitches everyone else. You know, she just kind of yeah. She just shuts yeah, him yeah. down. But then, did you notice when he leaves and then um, when she's got the gun on him and then he howls, then he says, um, the Lord God will, I wrote it down because I thought it was amazing. The Lord God will guide my hand in vengeance. And then he says, I'll be back when it's dark. So yeah. scary. Then, yeah, it's good. Uh, and I think, and I wrote this down just because I like the quote. I think it's right around this time, like in her inner monologue when he's talking uh, she says to herself, how many fools is that devil tricked with his lying mealy mouth gospel and his prayers and his hymn singing? I know. <laughs> um, so, but she, yeah, so she's on to him right away. And, um, but, but they, okay. So that scene though, at night when he comes back yeah. and he's just sitting on a stump and she's sitting on the porch with her shotgun mm-hmm. and he's singing, leaning on the everlasting arms. Yeah. And she joins. What a fellowship. What a joy divine, leaning on the everlasting arms. What a blessedness, what a peace is mine, leaning on the everlasting arms. Leaning on Jesus, leaning on Jesus, safe and secure from all alarms. Leon Jesus, Leon Jesus, leaning on the everlasting arms. Yes. And, and it's like this beautiful... Like the, the the most vivid illustration of that sort of point counterpoint, you know, yeah. he's the religious zealot who's a, who's a hypocrite, and mm-hmm. she is the real thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, man, it's it's just that that the scene is. Anytime I've like talked to people about that movie, say, have you seen this movie? They'll say no, and I say, we well, got to watch this scene. I mean, it's just- so, right. And then um, what's cool? So they're singing it, leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms, and then she starts saying. Jesus, Jesus, lean on Jesus, lean on Jesus, lean on Jesus. He never, 
ever says the name Jesus hmm. ever. And she, she does. So she sings, she doesn't sing this second lyric or the second, what do you call it? Verse. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She, uh, she doesn't sing with him. She sings Jesus leaning on Jesus, leaning on Jesus. Yeah. So she um, takes it back, I think, is what she's doing in a way. To me, I saw that as, uh, yes, I kind of like Judas, you know, like, yeah, you did all the stuff with the other apostles. Yep, yep, yep. But in the end, you're different. And she hmm. takes it back, I thought. Yeah, yeah. She's reclaiming the faith in a way, right? Yes, I mean, yeah. 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 And it looks a lot, It unfortunately, it looks the same to a lot of people from the outside. Yeah. Did you have any other notes about specific things you wanted to to address that sort of stood out to you in the film? Because you you had a lot of picked up a lot of things I actually missed. Um, well, here's my uh, like my I'm in high school thing that I noticed. Uh, I noticed that there's always a light on at their house. The gas light outside's always on, and I just thought that was hope perhaps if i were writing my high school paper um hmm. that the light maybe was just hope because why was that gas light on all the time in that creepy old house that's interesting well so the only I'm, thing yeah I'm the only to, light yeah and uh, th th there might be a a symbol there i'm trying to think i feel like in the book there was something about how they had to, the the gas company ran a line through their property and the way that they you know They'd say, "Well, if you let us run a line through your property, we'll put a gas light in front of your house." Oh, really? Oh, isn't that yeah. because I didn't notice that it was just all on? Okay, I guess I would say the um, just kind of little thing. Like, what did I write down here? Um, uh, of things that I kind of noticed. Oh, um, uh, first of all, when he first shows up, and it's just his scary shadow, and it looks like the Quaker Oats man is coming to get them. Uh -huh. <laughs> It's just like that. And then she, the little girls, how cute with a voice. She's always talking like that. She's adorable. I love oh, that. Yeah. And um, uh, I think, now this is just me, but this is like my women's intuition, I think, on this. I think that the guy who directed uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, who was it? Mm -hmm. That guy's name. I can't remember. Um. Oh, rats. I can't remember. Maybe you can figure out, find out. I think he pulled heavily because that was in 62. This was 55. Mm. I feel like he pulled heavily from their relationship, Pearl and John's relationship for Jim and, um, and Scout. And Scout. Or, yeah. It doesn't it just feel like a, a, a kind of the beginning of that relationship, like that, like a first run at that. And then uh, To Kill a Mockingbird is better. It's more richly drawn between the brother and sister, but that. I think he must have been influenced by that. Even for that whole movie, I thought was influenced by, by this. It's 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 so funny that you mentioned To Kill a Mockingbird because like when I first watched this, and I was describing it to somebody. I said it was kind of like To Kill a Mockingbird on acid. Yeah, um, right, right. But yeah, there, there there is definitely some similar things going on. And uh, the director was uh, Robert Mulligan for To Kill a Mockingbird. Robert Mulligan. Yep, I feel like he. I bet he was a fan. I bet if you asked him, he would say I, that he admired that movie. Yeah, you think you might. So that's yeah. all I kept noticing. Um, also, was that it, he does look like the Quaker Oats man is chasing them at some points uh, with his little tie. Otherwise, like a '80s corporate woman with her little bow tie thing. Um, and then it's super gross when they go and they're begging, and that depression lady just gives them both a potato that they just start eating a cold potato. Mm -hmm. So gross. 
thinking a little bit more about the Kill Mockingbird thing because you mentioned yeah. it. My brain's turning now. Um, yep, yep, yep. So there are a lot of interesting similarities. So there's, you know, Gregory Peck is guarding the uh, the jailhouse with the shotgun. Mm-hmm. Um, there, it's, it is a coming of age kind of thing, right? Because these kids have to grow up very fast in the face of what they're sort of seeing and happening in the in the world around them. Right. Uh, yeah, and, and and there's I mean there's sort of a kind of a darkness that's happening. I mean, Kill Mockingbird has this sort of eerie something's happening in the background, but you can't quite put your finger on it. Um, mm -hmm. And there's even kind of like a boogeyman. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, and, and that hypocrisy there. and all that. I mean, they are similar. They're yeah. they're similar movies, but 1962 was a different time, kind of ready for that darker stuff. 55. I mean, I don't know what other movies were out. You had, well, you had Marty that year. <laughs> best picture. Um, okay. I don't know. I just think, uh, I'm sure that other people were really highly influenced by it and it was not a financial success at all, which is, I guess Charles Lawton was, he didn't live very much longer after that. Yeah. Well, it was, it was the only thing they, they gave him a chance to direct. Well, and I think speaking of the influence of it, um, I kept thinking, did you ever read The Stand or watch the miniseries of Stephen King? No, I didn't. Okay. The miniseries is hokey, but it's worth watching. The one from the 80s? Uh, I was, think it was like 92 or something. Oh, right, right, right around there. Yeah. Um, it's hokey in spots, but the miniseries is worth watching. And the book is really darn good, too. Um, but the uh, there's like the, the Mother Abigail uh, character who's like the you know the, the leader of the good ones, <laughs> the good people in this uh -huh. sort of post-apocalyptic world. And then there's Randall Flagg who's like a stand-in for Satan. And oh. I kind of saw like a Rachel Cooper and Preacher kind of thing going on there. And I and I remember thinking, man, you know, Randall Flagg really I really kind of see like you know this Robert Mitchum kind of character in him. And um and I actually just on a whim kind of Googled it and I saw where Stephen King had like put together this list of like his top ten of like movie villains and like villains in literature and stuff. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he um he listed Preacher as like in the top ten. Yeah. Oh, he is. Um, I think Pauline Kale said something about this movie about it's it's um there's some funny stuff in it because there is, but aside from it, it is one of the most horrifying movies ever. It's it's a true horror story because there's kids involved and anybody just chasing kids it's it's everyone every kid's greatest fear that a scary guy would come and get you and he's never fast he's always slowly coming mm -hmm. after you and he even sings the song scary. slow he sings the song slowly even <laughs> he sings the song so slowly it's so yeah. such if 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 people want to see a scary movie uh this is a scary movie this is the only kind of scary movie that i like because it's it's suspense there's no actual gore in it yeah. although the scene of Shelly Winters in the Model T underwater oh, is terrifying. Man, it is. And it, I mean, that, that was like, I like was paused it and looked at my wife and I was like, are you, are you watching this? Like, I, was, I was a little shocked about it. And it was shocking. It, and if you look, you can see kind of the mark, the line where he supposedly slit her throat. And then there's that line, like Uncle Bertie, who, you know, this kind of, you know, sea dog character, Drunk. he finds the body. Yeah. And, talking about it like to himself later uh and or to his dead wife one of the two and he's, he has this comment about how like it was like she had a second mouth yeah and that was, was like, yeah I, I noted that too that's super creepy and it's uh, yeah i mean the film is so graphic and so in so many ways that like surprise you yep um without yep. being you know super you know explicitly graphic i guess but um but yeah um and and i i think you know 
another area where maybe uh, some of the kind of the psychological aspects of you know like what what happened to preacher kind of thing. There's another thing in the in the book which is what was the the effect of this on John, mm-hmm. and um, that isn't really detailed in the movie. Like you maybe could get a sense of it a little bit, but in the book, after all this happens, he basically loses his memory of everything that happened before he got to Rachel's. And oh, so wow. when he's like, yeah, when he's like on the stand. So he has to go uh, to therapy in the movie in his and 30s, obviously. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's <laughs> what that's all about. I see. Yeah. He's on the stand. They tell him to point out the man or whatever. In the book, it's like every time he tries to look at him, it gets fuzzy. He can't even see him. Oh, that's um, so crazy. Because that seems, when was the book written? Um, right. The same year. They, they like got on this. 55. It was 1955. I mean, it's interesting because like the end of the, the line, I wrote it down the last book uh, line in the movie is she says, you know, with the little children, they abide and they endure. And I suppose at the time, you know, people used to always say that kids are resilient. They, they forget, but I think we know, we know better now. Mm. I mean, they forget for a while so you can grow up and you can do stuff, but, uh, it'll come looking for you. Yeah. Well, and it's and, and like in, in the in the book, it's like um, they'll like ask him questions about things that happen on the stand, and he'll say, "I'll remember one thing, but then I forget everything else." And it's like he'll little pieces come back oh, to him. Oh, that oh, isn't that the way it is though? When bad things happen to you, trauma. I mean, yeah. I don't know if, what your um, childhood was like, but yeah. Uh, yeah, you just you don't remember everything at once. But um, hey, here's another fun thing I I know I I noticed. Okay. Here's another high school. Um, writing my high school paper that I noticed yeah. at night, everything that they show is an unclean thing. It's owl. It's a hmm. rabbit. It's a toad and something else. And they're all unclean. Hmm. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And then um, you're from Cincinnati, right? Yeah. Doesn't he call that a den of perdition? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think your first is, uh, he, he says something about how, cause he's, he's telling the story that his wife ran off the kids and he's trying to find them. <laughs> And they said, well, where do you think she went off to? And he says something like, well, probably Cincinnati or one of those Sodoms on the Ohio River. Yeah, those dens of perdition. <laughs> <laughs> it's you that lives there, Cody. But you know. yeah, I, it's a great movie. People should definitely uh, watch it. And it's a scary one. If you're, it's yeah. better than oh, okay, Psycho. So it, it is. And you know, um, so my, my wife actually loves horror movies. And, um, but... Like I'll show her things like this, thinking, "Oh, well, she likes horror movies and stuff. She'll like this." And like I think I tend to show her things that are a lot more disturbing than she would watch on her own, but that uh-huh. I wouldn't necessarily think of as a horror movie. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, that's so true. Me too. Me too. Yeah. I don't think of. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I haven't we, seen a scary movie since. Um, um, I can't even tell you the last scary movie. I think I saw Silence of the Lambs, and that was the last time oh, I saw wow. a scary movie. Ninety-three, I think, right? Uh huh. That that uh, would yes. I I, I don't like to be uh, scared like that. Yeah, I can't get well, it out of my brain. So I, I so when we were dating, I showed up my wife Raven, um, um, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. Uh huh. When it was over, she looked over at me with like tears in her eyes and said, "Why would you show me that?" <laughs> Um, but yeah i mean (laughs) that's really funny well i think mike and i've watched that like 400 times that we just i don't know it makes us laugh our kids our kids will stop when they were really young too i don't know why it's great oh oh and the uh oh okay and mystery science theater connection uh uh, gamera there's a uh who's afraid of virginia wolf sketch with in one of the gamera movies oh right right that was when we were heavily in that was a heavy rotation for all of us on mst watching that yeah. yeah, 
Yeah, I, was, I think I think Turner Movie Classics started showing it. Yeah, we all watched it one weekend and then wrote that sketch. Yeah, I think like the, 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 glass in the in the isn't there like the sound of drinks being poured throughout through the whole thing? Sounds right. Yeah, I think I think the line though is um uh is, is a, it's who's afraid of Gamera Turtle instead of who's afraid of Virginia. Oh, Wolf. that's very funny. And, and um and it was something like oh you, you remember seeing the movie um uh, Gamera is holding his drink and uh he turns and says ah <laughs> something like oh that. yes oh no um um. Yes, is in the house that Joseph Cotton put him up in. Yes, I know the scene that we're doing. Yes, is when yeah. she's. That's very funny. I'm gonna say one short thing real quick, if that's okay, and then then I'm, then I'm gonna do the the conclusion. Is that okay? Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. So uh, mm -hmm. I talked about the idea. Of, so like, there's these stories of Moses and the bulrushes we talked about, mm -hmm. and that, that, uh, Rachel's reading, and then the, the Christ story, and how John they sort of he he sort of like puts himself in those stories, and at the end, and this is in the movie too, but uh, it's a little bit longer in the book, just a little bit. So quote is Rachel reflected about children. One would think the world might be ashamed to name such a day for one of them and then go on the same old way. Christmas made Rachel angry. It made her think again of what the world does to children. If one listened well upon any night in history, one might hear the running of their feet, the little children for whom there was no welcome door. Old Rachel banged pots and baking pans in her kitchen those bustling days before the Yule season, muttering to herself and scowling out her windows, angry at how it was with some child somewhere in the world that very winter day. Oh. But there's this deep connection to, you know, Christ here that, you know, that this movie ends on Christmas because it's about a little child who's hunted. Yes. yes. And, um, and yeah. that God explicitly identifies with this little child who's hunted. Yes. By, and by cares, becoming. And yeah. cares, uh, cares about him and her as an individual. Yes. That's, that's, I'm going to read the book. Um, yeah, you should. It's that, weird. It's great. And because then, then she asks him about, um, she starts to talk about that story and, she, and he says, what happened? And he, they fled, they fled Jesus and Mary and Joseph, they fled. So, um, yeah, that's really, um, such a unique way to think about that and such a, a beautiful way to that that she's angry about Christmas and yet reverent of it at the same time. It's a very uh it's kind of like our walk, you know, it's just where we, we're stuck here. Wow. Okay, so <laughs> Bridget, thank you. In so conclusion, much yes. Yes. It, it, um so you've got uh, riff tracks uh, releasing just about every month with Mary Jo Peel. Yep, with my dear friend Mary Jo Peel, exactly. And, and you've got one coming up soon, the spring collection. Uh, yep, it will be um, something called um, um, a match your mood, which is about ma matching your clothes to your refrigerator. And um, then it's um, spring something where it's about um, all the men's fashions for 1962. And then a little thing where some college boys rate girls on their outfits. So very and so, fun. And it's, so in the spring collection is not an anthology about Coily the Spring Sprite. It is not about Coily the Spring Sprite, but it should be out sometime this spring. We have to record it on um, Wednesday if there isn't a blizzard. Well, and and we've got so that's you can find all that at rifftracks.com r i f f t r a x yep and the Kickstarter uh, if people want to get in on it and get the rewards that ends March twenty fourth yeah you guys are doing Space Mutiny and Crawl 
in uh, theaters nationwide in uh, June and in August. The guys, I won't be there, but this is Kevin Murphy, um, Bill Corbett, and my husband, Mike Nelson. They'll be live in 600 theaters across the United States, both in June and in August, riffing this funny movie through Fathom Events. And it's such a fun way. I guarantee you, you will laugh more than you laugh at any comedy movie at a Riff Tracks live event. Three wow. or four laughs per minute. Guaranteed. Yes. Okay, anybody wants to learn about that, search uh, Riftrex Live 2018 Kickstarter on Google and it'll, it'll take you right there. It'll take you right there. Uh, Mary Jo and I's riffs are guaranteed two laughs per minute, but you know. Well, that's not as high, but it's still pretty good. Well, because we, we have to talk, but we talk a little more. Anyway, thank you, Cody, for having me. This is always so much fun. Thank you, Rachel.